Welcome to the Weekend University podcast, and this is your host, Niall McKeever. The Weekend University was set up to make the best psychology lectures available to the general public. To do this, we organized lecture days, where attendees get a full day of talks from leading psychologists, authors, and university professors. If you'd be interested in getting early access to our latest psychology lectures and discounts on our live events, you can sign up for the early access list at theweekenduniversity.com forward slash podcast. That's theweekenduniversity.com forward slash podcast. This week we have a lecture on meaning-centered psychotherapy from Dr. Joel Voss. Joel is a clinical psychologist, philosopher, lecturer, and author. He is deputy course leader of the professional doctorate in existential psychotherapy and counselling at the New School of Psychotherapy and Counselling in London, and a researcher at the Metanoia Institute. Joel is director of the internet platform Meaning Online, and chair of the successful international meaning conferences, the next of which will be held at Birkbeck, University of London, from the 12th to the 14th of July 2019. Joel has over 70 scientific publications to his name, including the books Meaning in Life, an evidence-based handbook for practitioners, and 50 pictures of living a meaningful life. His latest book, Mental Health in Crisis, will be published later this year. I'm excited to announce that Joel will be delivering the first ever Weekend University CPD Masterclass this month. This will be an interactive and immersive learning experience where Joel will deliver a one-day introductory course on meaning-centered psychotherapy. If you're interested in participating, please see the link in the description for more information. Enjoy the show. So meaning-centered therapy, what I'm speaking about, its aim is to help people live a meaningful and satisfying life despite of all life's struggles that all of us are always experiencing. And the way how we're doing that is by systematically and explicitly addressing what is meaningful in life. And also we try to make sense of our social situation that we're in. And also the way how we actually connect with what is truly meaningful for us. We're not doing that only in a cognitive way or only in doing. It's very experiential. So we use our own experiences. We listen to our intuition to really connect with that to really listen to ourselves, what is authentically meaningful to me. And we use a range of techniques for that, and I'm going to speak about that today. And it's not only theoretical, because often when I start to speak about meaning-centered therapy and about meaning in life, a lot of people think that it's all theory, it's all philosophy. Oh no, it's very much also very practical, it's very much about the daily lives. It's really about change in our community, in our houses, in our daily lives. I thought possibly one of the best ways to actually understand what I'm speaking about and also to make sure that you're not only listening to my presentation in like a, only a theoretical way, I'm going to ask you to do a very brief exercise. And totally at the end of the second part of my session, um, um, I'm also going to do a much longer exercise. But this is just a very brief exercise of just, let's say, two, three minutes. Because this often helps you to already start thinking for yourself, like, how do I connect with the theme? So I would like you to, and this is something you can just do for yourself, you don't need to share this with others, but just take like one or two minutes 
to remember a difficult moment in your life. Don't go to the most traumatic experiences, that can sometimes be too much, but think about a difficult moment in your life. What helps you get through this? And it can be anything. It can be something like the help that you got from others. It can be your own perseverance. It can be that you were talking about your problems with others. It can be your own temperament, your own... There's many th reasons why you could have gone through that difficult period. So I would like to invite you, just for one minute, have a think for yourself. What helped you to get through that difficult period? So you have like one minute for a bit of reflection. I hope that, yeah, this was just very brief and this can be like something that you can also, when you're at home again later or when you're in the tube, just to have another think or a feel uh, for yourself. It's an exercise that often helps, uh, particularly when you're now in a difficult period, when you then look back and you see, well, I've been able to get through those difficult moments. And what helped you then could actually also help you now again. But most likely those examples that you were thinking about, the things that helped you to get through that period, these are most likely things that are meaningful to you. And this is one of the reasons why it's so helpful to work with clients, to help them find yeah, what's truly meaningful and satisfying for you in your life. Because that can help you to cope with those difficult moments in your life. And these can be things indeed like getting social support, feeling connected, belonging, um, but also your own perseverance, your own pride in, well, I've just done this, um, or having a very active coping style. There's so many different things. And these are all examples of what can be meaningful for you. So just stay connected with th those examples for yourself, with what has been meaningful for you or what's still meaningful at this moment. Um, because this is what I'm now going to do in my talk. I've now been introducing now a little bit about why it's so important to address meaning with clients. And what I'm going to do in this presentation is I have two parts. The first part is mainly like theory. So that's just what I will do before those five minutes break. Uh, I'm going to speak a little bit about the history of meaning about Viktor Frankl, who was one of the big men in the uh, history of meaning-centered therapy. I'm going to speak a bit more about the field. I'm going to speak about, yeah, about clinical and etiology models, in other terms, that is actually what is it what we're speaking about and why is, can meaning be a problem for people? And I'll say something very briefly about research. After the brief break, I'm going to go more zooming in about what do we actually do as practitioners. So I'm going to discuss different types of skills or competencies about, yeah, about what we actually do. And hopefully that can also give you some tools, particularly if you work yourself with clients, that can be helpful to reflect on for yourself. But I really want, at the end of that session, I really want to also have some time and some space where we can actually also do an exercise together. Um, something similar to what we've just done, but a bit longer. Um, because I believe that the best way to learn um, is actually doing it and experiencing. Does that sound okay for you? Yeah? yeah?
a lot of nodding. No one really dares to say no, that is a bad idea. But yeah. Yeah, so about questions that will be totally at the end of the session. I know. <laughs> but I accept that, but you must bear in mind also that we are um, corresponding and cooperating with your delivery, which is very important. I know, of course. So thank you very much for that, yes. And absolutely, it's, it's a very good point as well that uh, at Tokyo at the end, there will be also time for a more official interaction indeed. Yeah. So I mentioned that I will very briefly speak about the history about meaning. Uh, and of course, that's like... You can speak about that for years, so I'm not going to do that. Um, and I'm going to be very brief, terribly, and I'm going to be totally reductionist. Um, so apologies for that. But when I really go back a lot in history, several thousands of years ago, I go to also some non-Western countries. I've been traveling also a lot, so I've seen quite a lot of different cultures. Interestingly enough, is that most cultures have used terms for meaning that are quite holistic. So when you look at some of the old Vedic texts, when you look at Taoism, when you look at Ikikai, the concept in Japan, or what uh, in Germany and the Netherlands, how we call that sin or zin, um, these are all terms which historically and from an etymological perspective mean like that your full body is engaged, like that it's more about perceiving, it's, it's, um, but it's also not only cognitive, that's the main thing. However, in English, we actually have only really, really one term that really works. And that's the word meaning. And with the word meaning, and also the way we, how we often use it, it's a much more superficial thing. Because it's very much about, um, yeah, actually, when, actually like in countries like Germany or the Netherlands, meaning, which actually comes from the word meinung or meaning, but that's, that means something much more like, it's just your opinion. So it sounds almost like random, subjective, uh, almost something you can control, something you can just change today or tomorrow. Whereas all those other cultures and times, they have a totally different concept of meaning. And I think that the use, how we nowadays use the term meaning in English, actually has to do with a more recent history in uh, our modern Western countries. Because this is the Middle Ages where um, people, when they were born, they were actually born somewhere on a certain point on the ladder of society and of the cosmos. So totally at the lowest rank, uh, there were the animals and, and nature, the trees. And totally at the highest, you can see that there's God, there are the kings, and there's the clergy. And when you're born a peasant, you're born usually somewhere there. You're born there, and that's just your place. Oh. And that's like how it was until quite uh, recent, until the Middle Ages. So... When you speak about meaning in that period, it's much more fulfilling your social, the social role and expectations that society had from you. And you would not really ask yourself, what's the meaning of my life? That was a ridiculous question. Because it was simply like that you simply do what you're expected to do, the place that you're expected to have. But you know that um, during the Renaissance and the Enlightenment, those, this idea of a ladder totally collapsed. And what happened is we became very skeptical and uh, then we started to think, well, meaning, 
is actually something that's very biosocially determined. So it's much more social Darwinist idea about it's just a battle of the fittest meaning, you know. It's just like the influence from commercials, from, from the church, from a social context that just tells us randomly almost what is meaningful in our lives. And this is an idea that has been very dominant since Enlightenment. And this gives actually like a quite flat idea about Earth. Uh, or a very flat idea about meaning, like a flat earth. Because it's like, it can be any meaning, it's almost random. It's not, not really something high, something... No, it's much more... You can just explain everything technically. So the idea that a lot of people have nowadays about meaning is that it's something that's kind of random. If one type of meaning doesn't work, just pick another one. Just do something else. Um, so it's a very functionalist idea. And so it's almost like um, when you're going to the stores, that you can actually buy instant meaning, you know, that you can go to the store, that, that you get it from the shops, uh, that you can get it from the shelves. And that's also why there's so many retreats, there's so many books like Seven Steps to Big Success, Seven Steps to a Meaningful Life, etc. There's so many books, self-help books on that. The idea that you can make meaning yourself and there's also the idea like, just do anything that's meaningful for you, whatever that is, but also do it just to the maximum. But whatever you do, we can just change it, it's random, but do it to the max. That seems very much how we seem to be thinking about meaning. However, when we really think back about where we come from historically, where we have a much more holistic idea about meaning, and then we have ended up here. Like, that's a very specific way of thinking about meaning. So. What you also see is at the same time, is during the 20th century, there is a new idea about meaning, where actually personal meaning is neither totally that idea about the letter from the Middle Ages, but it's also not so random or superficial as the modern meaning. But it's something different. It's like a third option almost. And this is what I call uh, climbing in the mountains, because it's very much like when we just go into our own experiences, there is a reason. And, uh, there is a hierarchy in our experiences between what's meaningful, what's less meaningful. That's also the exercise I started today with asking you, uh, what is, why are you here? The thing is like, most likely that's quite clear for you. And, and most likely I assume you have not been thinking about that for days or weeks or months. Now you make the decision somewhere, it, it just feels more meaningful than lying in your bed. And why that is? Yeah, there may be many explanations for that, undoubtedly. Um, but in the end, you just have that hierarchy in your experiences. And that is very much like what I call unpeeling your feelings. Because that's what is also called phenomenology. That's about unpeel your feelings, because your feelings are maybe many layers over it, like indeed social expectations could be there, or some things maybe feel more meaningful, other things maybe feel less meaningful. But what you do is you start to differentiate the meaningful from the less meaningful, um, and you start to really analyze for yourself what is, more, what, what is there. Um, and that is the great thing, that um, it is possible for yourself to be critical, but at the end find out, well, this is meaningful for me. When you just think about lying in bed, going to a lecture, well, lecture, you're here. And, um, and that unpeeling of your feelings, that can be relatively short. So this is very much the idea about combination of listen to your intuition. So listen to, well, is this meaningful, is this less meaningful? And also being very critical. 
And so in this way, it's possible to be critical about what's meaningful, what's less meaningful, but still listen to that. And that is also a very embodied experience. That's much more than only that cognitive thing or only that um, very superficial. But I think that this will become much clearer when I'm going to give all my examples. But this is like the theoretical background where actually like meaning center therapy comes from. So this is the, a little bit of the history about meaning in life. And then at the end of the 19th century, there was something weird going on. People started to help each other by talking. And that's called psychology, psychotherapy, talking therapies. And that's like the start of psychology was still kind of ambiguous because on the one hand it was very scientific, on the other hand it was more holistic, it was more about listening to a person in totality and what's meaningful for you, really staying with the person's experiences. However, as we know, it's like the medical model has very much won and has a very strong dominance in the way how we think about uh, therapy. So this is also a very reductionist idea, particularly in the beginning of the 20th century, where um, yeah, the idea was that meaning is nothing else than something else. So for instance, in the early psychoanalysis, they were saying, well, when people speak about meaning, there's nothing else than actually all the psychological dynamics. It's about the drives. It's about possibly the early childhood experiences, whereas meaning can actually be much more than that, obviously. And also, early behaviorists was indeed saying, well, meaning is actually irrelevant. Just kick it totally out of the um, therapy room because we should not speak about it. Of course, that was only like um, at the beginning of the 20th century. Nowadays, people are much, much more nuanced. And uh, I recently had a debate in one of the Dutch uh, uh, scientific journals. Uh, some of the behaviorists who founded behaviorism in the Netherlands, they were also saying, yeah, of course we speak about the topics in therapy as well. So things are not that black or white anymore. However, from this feeling that um, the totality of our experiences, that like the holistic experience of meaning, that there's not enough attention to that. So a lot of people at the beginning of the 20th century felt, well, we need something else. Because the totality of our subjective experiences is not done justice in modern philosophy, science, and psychotherapy. We need to really do justice to those experiences. We need to do justice to what's truly meaningful for individuals. We need to help people to make the differentiation between what's meaningful, what's less meaningful. Let's really listen to that. Instead of imposing our ideas about psychoanalysis or anything else. So we need to return to those authentic meanings. And the process of returning is like phenomenology. And that's like the background of uh, meaning-centered therapy. is to return to this holistic experience. And people like Jaspers, Bienswanger, uh, Alfred Adler, and particularly Karl Jaspers, they stand in this tradition. And let's just listen very briefly to what actually Viktor Frankl tells about this. And Viktor Frankl was one of the first to really break through um, the, the, the dominant paradigms in his time. They wish to make a lot of money. In Europe, every American student, if more every American adult, is regarded as someone who is just out to make a lot of money. Really, 16%, 16% of these students regarded their main goal and concern in life to make a lot of money. I'm quoting literally, make a lot of money. And you know what the top 
cash, the top category. We say category, category, what do you say? Category was among, you excuse me, but uh, I know I am speaking a marvelous accent without the slightest English. Now, <laughs> you know, you know what the top category was? 78% of these American youngsters were concerned as they expressed it themselves with finding a meaning and purpose in their lives. So this is realistic, a realistic view on man. And you know, you won't believe it, gray, uh, gray hair, my age, I started taking flying lessons recently. Do you know what my flying instructor told me? If you are starting here, wish to get here, say east, heading for this, and you have a crosswind, you will drift and you will land here. So you have to do what we pilots call a crabbing, he told me, C-R-A-B, crabbing. You have to head for north of this uh, uh, airfield, air and you have to fly that way, you see, as if you're headed in this direction. If you are heading here above this airfield, then you will actually land here. But if you head for here, you are landing here. This holds also for man, I would say. If we, if we take man as he really is, we make him worse. But if we overestimate him, <laughs> premature your applause, you will soon know why. If we, if we seem to be idealists and are overestimating, overrating man, and looking at him that high, here above, you know what happens? We promote him to what he really can be. So we have to be idealists in a way, because then we wind up as the true, the real realist. And you know who has said this? If we take man as he is, we make him worse. But if we take man as he should be, we make him capable of becoming what he can be. This was not my flight instructor. This was not me. This was Goethe. He said this verbally. And now you will understand why I, in one of my writings, once said, this is the most apt maxim and motto for any psychotherapeutic activity. So if you don't recognize a young man's will to meaning, man's search for meaning, you make him worse, you make him dull, you make him frustrated, you still add and contribute to his frustration. While if you presuppose in this man, if in this so-called criminal or juvenile delinquent or drug abuse and so forth, there must be a a, what we call spark, yeah, a spark of search for meaning. I thought it was just the best to let you listen to Viktor Frankl himself uh, and also to experience a bit the way how he was speaking at the time.
So Viktor Frankl was the first man who really promoted uh, meaning-centered therapy. And you may know his life story that he was Jewish. He has been in concentration camps. His full family was murdered. And he showed actually in his very impressive book, Men's Search for Meaning, how actually people are able to survive, even like terrible experiences such as concentration camps. And um, that is actually how he also became very famous. And this is not a bit where he's explaining his therapy. What is meant by logotherapy? Uh, therapy means uh, healing, and logos means meaning. Thus, logotherapy is really healing through meaning, although this, of course, is an oversimplification. So, logotherapy, how we call that, it's yeah, healing via meaning. Because this is also a term that he actually said in that first um, uh, uh, very short clip that I showed you, he was speaking about existential frustration because he was saying that what we, one of our problems is like when we were animals or animals, they can usually just follow their instinct, their drives, and yeah, that's, they don't reflect on themselves. And that's relatively easy. However, we human beings have a problem. We are reflective beings. We think about ourselves. We, we think about yeah, our options. And that makes it more complicated. And in the past, like I've shown actually also where I told, well, in the past it was more like that we just knew our place on the societal ladder. And we were told by church, by society, by the moral code, how we should live our lives. However, that has often gone in our current uh, uh, secularized society. So there's no individual guidance. And this combination is fatal almost, like where we are reflecting on ourselves all the time, but at the same time there's no individual guidance. And this is where people get frustration. And that's actually like what's even worse, is like that we are disconnected from our bodies. And also like uh, that full concept of the holistic type of meaning where like um, much more of our full body is, is included. We seem disconnected from our body much more, we, and from our intuition, from listening to ourselves. So we often don't know our full desires. And what happens then is, because we're reflecting, we, and we, there's no individual guidance, and we are not really in touch with our own feelings. What happens, according to Frankel, is that we become conformist, or even fall to all the uh, uh, kind of uh, um, totalitarian regimes. Like I would say, also nowadays, we see a very strong uh, fascism that's actually starting to creep up in many countries, unfortunately. And that has, is related to this background. And so also there's the wish that many people have to live a tensionless life. The idea that, well, when you just find that one particular goal in your life, everything will be okay. That's that very simplistic idea that we have, like we can just make any random meaning. It doesn't work that way. Life is much more complicated. And what we often have is when we try to strive towards goal, that takes time, it takes effort, it's a struggle. And also actually struggling and also having conflicts, feeling paradoxes, that is not pathological, that is not a problem, that is normal, that's part of life. And being able to live a meaningful life, despite of our struggles, that is what we should aim for. And this is where the existential frustration comes from, from many people. And this is where Frankl really wanted to help people. And it was very based on his idea that we have a freedom of will. And of course, 
it's not as if we can choose everything we want because, of course, that we are limited by our biological, social context, etc. However, we always have a freedom to decide how we relate to that situation. We can cope with it in many different ways. For instance, when he was describing in the concentration camp, when he was there, he would say, in a concentration camp, you have very limited options. However, one day, there were some people who actually ran out of the barracks and they started shouting like, well, you should come outside because you should look at the mountains. There's a beautiful sunset. So you had all those prisoners of war, all those inmates, you know, almost skeletons, walking skeletons, and they were, and they were actually enjoying a sunset. That's weird. And that's precisely what Frank was saying, like, we cannot change situations like being in a concentration camp. And that's also for ourselves on a much other level, but we are also limited by our socio-economic situation, by political situation, by the climate crisis. We cannot change it immediately on our own. However, we can change our attitude towards that. And we can look for what's meaningful within that situation. And this is what Viktor Frankl calls the freedom of will, which he believes is always there. And also he believes that meaning is so important. All of us crave for it. We have a will to meaning. And that's much more fundamental, according to him, than, for instance, this drive or this will to pleasure like Freud has. Because this is also the obsession that people have with happiness. He's saying happiness is something totally different because it doesn't work that way. For instance, pleasure is much more a byproduct of the fulfillment of our strivings. But it is destroyed when we really directly strive towards it. So the more a man aims at pleasure by way of a direct intention, the more he misses his aim. Most likely you've tried it yourself when you really have all those high expectations like I'm going to the concert, I'm going on that holiday, all the pressure, and it may come or it may not come. So pleasure or happiness, something that often we are focused on nowadays, it doesn't come that easy. And that's also what Viktor Frankl says. It's also very much about self-transcendence. It's like looking beyond ourselves, looking beyond our own happiness. It's looking beyond, it's actually transcending ourselves. So he says, the meaning which, is, which a being has to fulfill is something beyond himself. It is never just himself. Meaning must not coincide with being. Meaning must be ahead of being. Meaning sets space for being. So what he's actually saying here is like, it's, think about your context. So we have a responsibility, not only towards ourselves, towards our own potential, but also to be of end, but also to really look at society, at humanity, connecting a bigger purpose, creating a better world. And I've done a lot of research. I'm going to say something about that in a couple of minutes. Well, I actually discovered in 109 studies of 45,000 people worldwide, indeed what people focus on meanings, which are not merely materialistic or self-oriented, but when meanings are more about in a social domain, or when it's about a larger purpose, then people are doing psychologically and physically much, much better. So indeed, I think Viktor Frankl had a very good point here. And this is very important to bear in mind when you work, for instance, also with clients or for yourself. And that's so important to look at the bigger perspective. So this was a little bit about Viktor Frankl. However, we are now many decades later. And there are now even more than 38 different meaning-centered schools. So there are many different therapists and all with their own flavor to work with meaning. And I'm not going through them. And 
I often call this that it's like a meaning-centered therapeutic continuum where actually therapists give no systematic and explicit attention to meaning or they give totally explicit and systematic attention. Because in the end, how I see it, it's like also behavior therapists, they should also help you to live a more meaningful life. For instance, when I learn, when I overcome my phobia of dogs, I will feel free again to go shopping, to go out, etc. But before that, I was possibly too afraid to go on the streets. So in the MBA for therapy, it can be extremely meaningful. However, the difference between, for instance, behavior therapy or also acceptance and commitment therapy and other types of therapies is that it's, it's a less systematic attention. It's less explicit exploration compared to meaning-centered therapy. Meaning is something which is given and cannot be constructed in somehow, some way. This is uh, Alfred Lengler. And Alfred Lengler is one of those other speakers. And this is where he's also very much saying where um, what's really important is to really listen to actually how meaning is given and not how it's made. And where he's saying, well, that's a big difference. It's like a meaning center therapy. We really listen to actually that feeling that's already there. When you start to explore your feelings, you differentiate this meaningful, this not meaningful, that you feel, well, it's just there. And that's something different than the idea that some other therapists or types of therapy may give, like, well, you can just random, randomly pick any meaning or um, meaning itself should not be the core of therapy. However, when I did a lot of my research, I found out that actually all effective therapists, um, they actually help people to live a more meaningful life. And actually, the more explicit you really address meaning in life, the more effective therapy will be. And there's quite a lot of evidence for that, and I'm not going into those details. But this is very much my idea. Like, any good therapist is doing it. And I'm not like saying that I'm the only good one. Um, no, other therapists take also address meaning. But what is meaning? Just very briefly before we're going to go for a very brief break, but um, I just want to discuss a little bit about meaning. What is meaning actually? Um, so I often make a distinction between micro-meaning, meso-meaning and macro-meaning. So from small to larger. So let, let's start with, with a small level. That's my cup of coffee. Um, when I'm just drinking my coffee, I'm just enjoying it. It's nice. I like the taste. It's good flavor. It makes me a bit more awake, a bit more energetic, a bit more jumpy. Um, but I don't really need to think about it. It's just there, the meaning of this cup of coffee in this particular moment. It's also not something I think about cognitively. It's just there. It's a, just a primary flow of experiencing. I'm just experiencing it. I'm just, I'm just drinking. So how do I give meaning to this? It's just by experiencing it, just drinking it. However, I see a pattern. Like also when I drink my water, I also enjoy that. So apparently there's a pattern that I do like drinking. So, um, and if I look a bit further in my life, I see that I really have certain tastes that I really like. I like certain beers, certain wines, but also food, etc. I start to see a pattern where my pattern is actually that I do like good food, good drinks. I love that. So apparently, it's meaningful for me in life to have nice tastes, nice flavors. It's one of the meanings in my life. 
However, when I really start reflecting on it, and I, for instance, start to make the differentiation between meaningful and less meaningful. For instance, if I would need to choose between giving a lecture like this or drinking a cup of coffee, yeah, very clear, I would come here to give you a lecture. Um, and what's even better is to combine those. <laughs> but so what we can do is, like, from such a mundane experience, from drinking a cup of coffee, behind here we can already see the bigger patterns in our lives, which are, which are already there, which are non-reflected, which are already there in our experience. But we can reflect on that. And then I can go back. Like, uh, if I, for instance, would experience, like, a conflict between drinking a cup of coffee and giving a lecture, for instance, because... Uh, let's imagine drinking a cup of coffee would make me so jumpy that you don't understand me. Um, imagine. Then I would need to make a choice. But I can do that on the abstract higher level, decide, well, I'm going to skip my cup of coffees because giving lectures is more important. So what you see is that all those levels, they, they work. And it's not only very philosophical, it's just also just experiencing, just in the here and now. And that's what meaning center therapists do. They work at the same time at all those levels. I try to make it specific. And also at other times we start to see patterns. And again, and that's what we do. It's like we try to see the patterns and then reflect on the patterns and then go back. And that's actually like almost in essence how I see meanings under therapy. And also in therapy itself, it's also what I do because what's the meaning of therapy? It's actually that I speak with my clients about what is it? Why are you here in therapy? What do you want? What, so we start with that reflection. And then we can decide, well, let's do this meaning-centered therapy, this thing that I've developed, let, let's use this treatment. Okay, cool. Possibly at one point we start to feel, well, it doesn't totally work well. Like when we're just experiencing it in a relationship, like, it's going that well. And then we go back again and we start to just, ex just speak about it, like, does this really work, this approach to you, or should we do something else? So that's also even speaking about a therapy, it's also going back and forth. And this is often how I start my therapy. I just discuss a little bit about what is meaning. And I think that that's now already quite clear that it's not like only one particular thing in your life, like that is one absolute meaning or it's only for spiritual people or it's unchangeable. No, it, it's, it's much more a lived experience. It's changeable, but at the same time, that's... We can find it, we can discover it by analyzing our own experiences. We can discover what's more meaningful and what's less meaningful. So I often start with my clients speaking about, what is it for you? How do you experience it? And it just gives an explanation. And this is an important one. Uh, people who have been here at my previous lecture, they've already seen this picture. And this is the thing that I find very important. It's because many people ask, what is it actually? Because meaning in life is such a difficult term and so, I often say, well, living a meaningful life, that's like the total experience of sailing through life. Because when you sail in a sailing boat, it's not like um, as if you can reduce that to one thing. Like, um, some people, when they speak about meaning in life, they say it's having one particular goal. No, meaning in life is much more than that. For instance, also when you're sailing, sailing is more than going from point A to point B. For instance, like uh, sailing towards that particular lighthouse. It's more than that. So meaning is all the things at the same time. So meaning is, indeed, it's about having like some points at the horizon where we go to, the goals that we set in our lives. So it's about motivation. 
But it's also about having values. So there's a value also about, uh, for instance, my value when I'm sailing, I won't use my motor. No, I will just use the wind. And also in life, I have certain values, like how do I want to live my life? It's ethics. <coughs> it's also about map. It's about understanding my place. Where am I in life and society? How do I understand? How do I give sense? How do I make sense? It's also about navigating. It's about knowing, like, this is how I... Um, how I actually do it. Like, it's nice to have the theories, but how do I actually set goals and manage goals in my daily life? It's also about self-worth. So it's about, well, I feel really uh, worthy enough to actually get my sailboat out of the shed and really go on the water. And it's okay to listen to myself. It's okay to really listen to what's meaningful to me. And I'm worthy for that. And also actually doing it. And really not only doing it theoretically in like a therapy session, but actually living your life. And finally, also surviving storms. That's knowing how can I live a meaningful life despite of the problems that I may encounter in life. So meaning is like all the things at the same time. All of them. And that's interesting. Um, whereas too many therapists, they only see it as one thing. For instance, acceptance commitment therapy, which you may have heard of, they mainly look at it as particularly as values. Whereas I'm saying, well, it's much more than that. And this is a thing that you will experience when you speak with clients, etc. And living a meaningful life is also when we ask, what are precisely the examples? What is a precise way we find it? And I'm going to speak about that in the second part a bit later, a bit more. But we have like five different sources of meaning, like five waterfalls of possible meanings in our lives. So... Uh, we can find meaning in materialistic or hedonistic experiences. So, for instance, like in a material possession, or success in a job, etc. Or drinking cups of coffee. It can also be about self-oriented types of meaning. So that's like uh, about self-care, autonomy, taking pride in yourself, your perseverance, autonomy, stuff like that. It can also be about social meaning. So about my social connections, belonging to a community, taking care. It can be about larger meanings about the higher purposes, personal growth, trying to create a more just world. And finally, it can be about more abstract, more philosophical stuff, for instance, like feeling alive, feeling connected, feeling unique. Um, for instance, when I often work with people in the last stages in their life, that I often say, well, at this moment, there's nothing new I can create or do. But I'm still grateful that I'm at this moment still here, that I'm breathing. That in itself is meaningful. So what we often see is that people experience meaning in multiple domains at the same time. And what I already said is like, it's particularly those materialistic and self-oriented types of meaning that are associated with worse psychological well-being and worse even physical well-being. We even know that, for instance, uh, tumors, cancer, actually develops uh, quicker when you're primarily focused on this. It's also your immune system is worse, etc. There's quite a lot of indications for that, although more research is needed. Whereas when you focus more on the social and the larger types of meanings, precisely what Viktor Frankl called us, that self-transcendence, when you focus on that, your life will be actually, you will also feel mentally better, and physically better. I'll just skip this very quickly. So one of the th big things is also about, um, yeah, it's like sometimes you have the feeling that uh, speak about meaning is like very theoretical. But most likely in your daily life, in your daily life you're just living it. Like what I was saying is when I'm drinking my cup of coffee, 
I'm not asking myself, is this now meaningful? No, that would be ridiculous. I'm just experiencing my cup of coffee and I just enjoy it. Stop. And that's very much like um, what I call being inside a hot flow uh, so of, of experiences. So very much like just experiencing and feeling, well, it's nice. It's, I'm not thinking about it. It's like flow. It's mindful. I'm happy. And, I'm, and so that's often when people speak about that. Also clients, be aware of that. Like when someone is saying, I am drinking my cup of coffee, so ing, you know that they're in a, usually in a good place because they are in a process of experiencing uh, a meaningful life. However, when people start to speak about the meaning of life, then I get worried. Um, or I am thinking, well, what's going on there? Why are they not in that happy flow of just experiencing a cup of coffee? So. At those moments where people start speaking nouns, you know, um, and they start, then they're apparently theorizing about it, they're reflecting about it. And um, so there's like a hyper-reflection or a hyper-intention. So people are like, what is really meaning of, what the meaning of my life? What is, so it's very theoretical, very much in their mind. Or like, I must achieve this particular thing in my life. I must, must, must. When you really get so rigid and so focused on that, it becomes very difficult to be inside that flow of experiencing. You're blocking yourself. So that's, again, what I'm saying all the time is to help people to go back to that flow of experiencing. Whereas on the other side, sometimes it is good to go also to that more reflective space because it can be helpful, particularly like when you're just living your daily life on an automatic pilot and you're never reflecting. On the other hand, that's also not a good thing because it could be that you're just going from A to B to C, whereas actually there may be bigger perspectives that you're missing out. But particularly with life events, so people suddenly start to change. So people feel, well, I'm totally cast out of my experience. And it has to do with our basic experiences, the basic conditions of life that are suddenly changed. Because in our daily lives, we have the idea that, well, um, Life is predictable, we're in control of what happens, we are invulnerable, life's benevolent, I can explain things. These are expectations we often have implicitly in our daily life. So for instance, I'm giving this presentation here and I assume that you won't uh, totally lynch me. It's just a very basic expectation. It's also my expectation you understand me. And it's thanks to that that I'm able to give this presentation and I'm now in the flow when I'm talking. I'm not really reflecting on myself presenting now, I'm just in the flow. And um, that is because this works, I have those expectations. However, if there's something in your life that happens that actually undermines those assumptions, for instance, when you start attacking me, or when actually like, uh, for instance, in your life, if you develop a very serious disease, when Brexit happens, when um, the climate suddenly becomes a big problem. All the things, they can suddenly block that normal flow that we have in our daily lives. And then we start to reflect. Then we are outside of that flow. And this is very much what you will work on also in therapy. Like, how can you live a meaningful life despite of that, uh, yeah, those difficult moments in life? And this is like all those models that you can create in psychology. But every time and time again, I'm going into detail, but I'm just showing like, this is like a model about, or I'll show it so this is a better one. So this is like a model that I've created about 
uh, people with uh, physical disease. Like, and you see in the middle of it is like, how do people cope or psychologically with difficult moments in life, with changes in life? This is the block about meaning. Like, how do you, how are you able to still live a meaningful life despite of the problems? And that's very much what, as meaning therapists, what we really try to work on. And this is very much like I've been speaking now about, I've been giving you a lot of information. And what I'm actually saying is like, you can just, on the basis of this, already create so many hypotheses. These are just some examples of hypotheses that you can just create on the basis of those slides I gave to you before. It's like, yeah, there's so many ideas. And this is actually what we also do when I work with clients. I'm just checking what's going on here. I try to find out why, for instance, are you not in that flow? Why are you reflecting? Um, why do you have that idea that life is like a ladder and you need to have that one particular place in society? Why, etc. So you can create many hypotheses. And on the basis of that, I'll try to work with the client and test it with the client and look for alternatives. And there's quite a lot of scientific evidence for this. I'm not going through it, but this is just examples. It works, it works. We find it again and again. And also, like, I did a big study on uh, all the meaning center therapies that have ever been published. And there are big, big numbers, big effects that we find. And it seems to work that when you help people in a direct way to live a more meaningful life despite the problems, they'll see that people will... Actually, their psychological stress reduces. The quality of life increases, like uh, meaning in life, self-efficacy, social well-being, uh, depression, anxiety. All the things become much, much better. And also that is because people learn how to live a more meaningful life. And this is what we found in big studies. And this is also even like larger effects than other types of therapies in many groups. And this works in all countries that I've seen. And... Um, And actually, this is a questionnaire. That's an example how you can work in, with your clients. And I'm putting this up now here because I think I've totally overwhelmed you with loads of information. So undoubtedly, you want to have like a brief um, moment of like five minutes to get back to yourself. Um, so we're going to have a big break, uh, or a short break. I mean, um, why was I saying a bit? Um, <laughs> Just have like a five minutes break uh, and people who really want to, in the meantime, possibly do this questionnaire for yourself. This is the Meaning in Life questionnaire that was developed by my colleague Michael Steger. And, um, and this gives you an idea about to which extent are you experiencing a meaningful life at this moment and to which extent are you actually asking questions about meaning in life. But in this second part, we're going to speak really about uh, how does it really work in practice. So I'm going to speak about mental hair care. Oh, sorry, I mean mental health care. So um, I'm terrible. Yeah, that's my book. Um, if you really want to know more about this presentation, actually every, a lot of the stuff in this presentation, not everything, but a lot of it actually you can also find in my book. Um, so, and this book is very much what I call an evidence-based common denominator meaning-centered therapy. Um, that's a very nice word when you're doing some word games with people where they need to guess uh, the word that you have in mind. So this may be a very good one when you're doing one of your Christmas games with your family. I can, I can tell you that they won't be able to guess this word. Um, 
Now, but what it actually means is, so from all those meaning center therapies, um, and I already told you there are like 38 different schools after Viktor Frankl, many different people who interpret in different ways. What I've done is I've actually looked at all the research on it. I've looked at all the therapies that have been uh, yeah, supported by empirical evidence. And I actually picked um, all the effective bits of it. So I'm kind of a stealer person, where I'm like a thief where I took all the helpful bits and pieces. And I created that like in a relatively brief therapy that I call, yeah, it's a common denominator therapy. So what I've done is I'm going to now show you uh, some of the main skills and some of the main overview of the sessions. And I'm not saying that every therapist works in this way. Oh, no. However, it shows more or less what a lot of people more or less do. So I'm trying to get a little bit of an essence and uh, where there's a lot of individual variation. So this is an overview of like the therapy. In, the, in this column, the dark blue column, these are the 10 weekly sessions because this is when I do it in a standardized way. Uh, when I really give like group therapy. However, in practice, I don't use such a structured um, uh, way of working because often it's much more tailored to the individual. However, it can be helpful, particularly like when people have limited time to say, well, we're going to do 10 sessions. And when I do 10 sessions, I did it in this way. So this is the overview of the session. So the first three sessions are about the introduction and the relevance of the therapy. Uh, and particularly of like meaning. Um, then I have one session for each different type of meaning. You remember that I was speaking about five different types of meaning. So there's a session about materialistic types of meaning, about self-oriented meanings, social meanings, large meanings, and about more philosophical abstract types of meanings. So if we have one session for each where we explore how is it relevant at this moment in your life or is it not relevant, would you like to do it more, and reflect on that. And in the last couple of sessions, we really look at how can we apply this actually in our daily lives. So that's like the overview. And then here we have actually what we do within a session. So at the beginning, there's like an introduction about what are we going to do in this particular session. Then usually I have a bit of theory. So I, I'm, I'm very educational I, because I believe it's helpful for people just to learn a bit about how do those things work? I'm very transparent in that sense, like I share my expertise with you and with my client and on that basis we work together. And then this is the main bit. We're going to do a lot of experiential types of exercises. So we look at your experience. So for instance, I do some meditation or mindfulness. We're going to do that in like 10 minutes time. We're actually going to do that ourselves now as an example. And while people are in a more relaxed state, so people are not only in that cognitive, intellectual type of space, but when people are a bit more relaxed, a bit more open for all the experiences, but people are more there, what I'm then trying to do is then, from that state, I'll ask them questions about what's meaningful for them. And we're going to do that, so that you'll experience that very soon yourself. And that's very often helpful. And then we share those experiences and uh, we reflect on it. Um, and then finally, at the end of the session, we're going to evaluate, like, what are the conclusions you want to take from the session? Because it can be that you say, well, 
while I was reflecting on those questions, well, those types of meanings, those examples are not relevant for me. I don't want to do anything with it. Fine. I'm not judging you on that. It's like I'm, I'm helping you to make those decisions and to reflect on that. And um, then I'm also helping people to really, yeah, set some goals. Or like, what do you really do with those experiences in your daily life? How do you do that? So this is like in a nutshell how I do my therapy. And well, this is like very stereotypic. What I'm saying is like usually I do it in a much more flexible way. But this is an example how I could work with clients. So I already promised you I'm going to speak about those different therapist skills uh, or the competencies. Because I, when I looked at all those different meaning-centered therapies which have been published and which are shown to be effective, the, I actually discovered that there are 39 therapist skills that uh, a lot of the therapists have in common. And I've put those 39 therapists' uh, competencies actually in five categories, because otherwise it becomes a bit too much. And then I also looked for each bit, and I looked, are they actually also supported by other types of evidence? Yes, they are. So that's what I'm going to share now with you. So I'm going to share some of those competencies, like what do I actually do as a therapist? What are the skills I need? Um, and again, you can find more details, for instance, in my uh, handbook. Um, so the first skills, first group of skills are assessment skills. And assessment skills is very much about speaking with a client, is this actually relevant for you? Because that's very much how I started today's uh, presentation about saying, well, when you have hurt your toe, um, your toe should be cured and not uh, like that your arm gets amputated. In a similar way, if a client comes to me and the questions are more about, their, so about their, something else in their lives, if there is an issue, for instance, with attachment, with, with the childhood, with trauma, with something more in the past where meaning is not directly relevant, I'll actually say, well, I think you should actually go to another therapist. Or actually, I will work with you in a different way. So that's important to really be aware, well, when does this type of therapy apply and when does it not apply? I will also create like some hypotheses, like what I said at the first part, on the basis of like the clinical and the etiological model, so on the basis of all the theory, I'm going to speak with the client about, okay, what could be going on? How can meaning be relevant? Why do we have those issues? So I start to create some work hypotheses uh, about that. So I'm assessing what's going on in your life. And then this is the most unique part. These are what I call the key meaning-centered skills. So this is very much about working with meaning. So what I already said is about giving some didactics, being explicit about what's the theory I have uh, or that we have. Because I believe that the thing is like in our uh, childhood, uh, when we grow up, at school we learn how to calculate, we learn how to read and write. And from our parents we may learn how to behave. But there are very few people who really actually teach us how to live a meaningful life. So, of course, it's very normal, I find that, to just share with people this is like what we know, how it works. And so I find that very important. Um, actually, in a similar way like I'm doing today. Very open, transparent with my clients. I will also help people to focus on the long term instead of only looking at very direct, immediate uh, gratification of your immediate urges. 
really look at a, at, at a large perspective um, on your life. And also identify, like, when people speak about meaning, for instance, when they say, well, I'm enjoying this cup of coffee, uh, like that example that I gave. So they will say, well, how is that cup of coffee meaningful to you? Are there patterns in your life? Are there any bigger patterns? So what I'm doing is I'm specifying and seeing the patterns in the life which may be relevant for meaning. So from the stories, I listen with this meaning lens to the stories. And I'll explicate that. Um, yeah, what else? There's a lot of stuff I'm doing, but I think that this is the most important bit. It's just mainly showing where's the meaning in your experiences. I'll just give a brief example. Like once I was called into a hospital to help with a client who was really anxious um, because she was actually waiting for a surgery for a tumor uh, which really had to be removed. And that was needed to be done very quickly because it was at the wrong place in the head. And um, however, she was too anxious to undergo the surgery. And so the psychiatrists were called in and the psychiatrist said, well, we can give you some pills against your anxiety. But she was even too anxious to accept the pills. So everyone was like, how can we help this person? Because she needs to get over her anxiety to be able to undergo the surgery. Like we were totally stuck with her. But then I saw that her last name is Dutch and I'm originally from the Netherlands. And this was not in the Netherlands where I saw this person. And so I asked her, well, I see your surname is Dutch. Are you originally Dutch? She said, yes, yes. And I asked, okay, and, and have you ever been in the Netherlands? She said, yeah, yeah, in my childhood, I've been there once in the Netherlands. Okay, tell me more about that. And then she started to tell all those big stories about, particularly when she went to this big party we have about Santa Claus, about uh, uh, Santa Claus, let's say something like that, at the beginning of December. She told about all those details and her eyes started to shine and... She had been trembling all the time from anxiety. But when she was speaking, she f it stopped and she became totally relaxed. And then, I still, and then I said to her, hey, look at yourself. Look at what happened. You're not trembling anymore. You're not anxious. She said, oh, yeah, you're right. I said, hey, so apparently you have it in yourself. You have the skill to get through this. You have it in you to, to some extent, control your symptoms. And particularly when you have the ability to go back in your memory, to find those places, a safe space, those positive memories that can help you to get through this. And that is like, actually, that helped her to actually accept some anxiety medications and actually then also have the surgery, which actually in the end saved her life. This is a very, actually, very basic human story. But this shows actually the importance of really addressing what's meaningful for a client. And it's always there. It's like even what I often do is when I cannot get a connection with a client, I just ask, for instance, about a jewelry. And they ask them a full story about that. I ask about a watch they have. And in the end, like people, I've seen quite a lot of people crying over the questions I ask about their watch, you know. Uh, because meaning is everywhere. If you just address it and uh, you start to speak with people about it. And which is also brings me to another topic. It's like it's all about relationship because you can only address meaning with a person when you have also a meaningful relationship. Um, and this is a very, very important thing. Um, whereas it's not only like a cognitive thing. Like what I've told you before is like the more you work on the theoretical level, you're not really getting into what's truly meaningful. So 
it's important also in your relationship that you have like an open, warm, trusting, safe relationship. Um, there are many ways how we can do that. Um, like I once had a client who was very distant. And uh, due to that, we also, the therapy was really stuck. So and then I started actually at one point, I said, well, I feel that there's something going on in a relationship. So I started to really address it quite explicitly, our relational issues. And by actually speaking about that, it started to open up in the relationship. And from there, actually, there was much more openness, much more warmth. He felt accepted, etc. And then we could finally work on what's truly meaningful in his life. And that's how we really made a change. And then there are like a group of, of skills that I call phenomenological, experiential and mindfulness skills. In other terms, that's very much about getting out of that. There are many different ways how you can do that. And there are many different other types of psychotherapists who have used loads of different techniques, like also mindfulness, meditation, or dream work, uh, or creative arts. Later today, we will hear more about music therapy or even about some, some uh, uh, kind of psychedelic therapy. That these are all ways, these are all different ways how we can actually address what's meaningful for us um, in the non-cognitive way. And that can be particularly helpful for people who are too much thinking, thinking, thinking. And finally, last set of skills are so-called existential skills. And that's very much about actually be explicit about what's going on in your life and be realistic about life and saying, well, life is full of paradoxes, life is full of threats, life is full of challenges. And well, that's life. Things don't come that easy. And just acknowledge that and say, well, of course you're stressed. I understand. I understand you're in such a difficult life situation. Like I did also with that woman in the, in the hospital that I told her very much like, I understand you're totally afraid. I get it. And by addressing that, we can really help it. Uh, like I remember that one person when I was helping her actually quite literally on her deathbed. And still until the last moment, she was on her phone playing games. Uh, because actually the fact that she was dying, that she would be dead in a couple of days, was too much for her. It was really difficult for her. And I understand that. Because it is a lot. It is, it's frightening, of course, by definition. So I spoke with her about that. And we addressed it, like her fear about death, etc. And by addressing it, giving it a name and saying, yes, it's okay to feel that way. And by actually bringing that in, she didn't need to necessarily use her phone all the time. And she was able to connect a bit with her family. So this is also an important bit. So these have been uh, some of the key skills uh, that uh, I would use as a meaning center therapist. However, what I already told is like when it's about working with meaning, one of the most important bits is about experiencing it and doing it. So what I'm now going to do with you is a big, uh, it's a big experiment. Um, because we're going to do an exercise and I'm going to do like almost like a mass group psychotherapy with you. I've never done psychotherapy with such a big group at once, so I don't know whether this is going to work. Um, and also what I'm going to do is, I will do it in a different way than I've done it before. So it's like a new tryout. Um, because what I want to do with you is to do a brief mindfulness exercise, so a little bit of meditation. And then after that, um, 
I will ask some questions about those five different types of meaning. Usually, within one session, I only address one type of meaning. What I'm going to do with you, and I've never done that before, I'll actually go through those five different types of meaning. I'll just ask you some questions to think about some examples about each type of meaning. Um, and I'll just ask you to just, whatever comes up in you, ju that just comes up, and that's fine. I'm not asking you to do anything more, but like, what are your first associations when I ask those five different types of meaning? What, what, what comes up? That's fine. And then I'll ask you, and that's um, why you can see all those post-its. Um, then I'm going to ask you, after that, to write one example of meaning on one post-it. Um, so, one example per post-it, and I'm going to say that later again. And then we'll sort of kind of start working with that as well. But that's what I'm going to do uh, with you. And... Um, yeah, so I've now kind of introduced what we're going to do, so possibly let's just do it. Um, and again, um, I hope, the thing is, I'm not going to do anything scary, anything weird, I hope. Uh, but if you feel, for whatever reason, like, that you need to not participate, that's fine. So look after yourself if you feel, well, I don't want to go there, fine. But just do your own thing, that, that, that's okay. Uh, so don't feel forced to do anything you don't like to do, obviously. But we're going to do, we're going to start with a brief mindfulness exercise. And um, so I would like to ask you to um, sit relaxed and have, try to have nothing on your, la on your lap. Um, or at least that is not really disturbing you. Um, possibly like what often ha is helpful just to have your hands on your, on your legs or just have it in a relaxed position that is good for you. I would also like to invite you to close your eyes, but if you feel that that's too scary, you can also just stare a bit in front of you, that's also okay. So, now that you've closed your eyes, I would like, I would like to invite you to feel how you are sitting. Just feel how your body is touching the chair and how it's touching the ground. Just feel how it's touching. And also observe how your body is feeling today. Is your body tired or energetic? Are there any pains or is your body relaxed? Just observe. How is your body feeling at this moment? And also observe your breathing. So are you breathing, is your breath very deep? Or is it shallow, is it going quick or slow? You don't need to change it. Just observe how your breathing is going. 
And now that you are aware of your body, I'm going to invite you to think about some examples of meaningful moments in your life. And just let any associations come up with the questions that I'm going to ask. And it can be anything. And if you have found one example, try to find another example. And if nothing comes up, that's also okay. But just listen to my questions and see what feelings are coming up. I would first like to ask you to think about some materialistic things or some things that you have in your life or nice experiences that you have in your life. Though so these can be about things that you have, like things like a house or CDs or whatever possessions you have, a car, or financial security or success in your career or in your education or just some nice experiences you have like going out, food, all your health, sports, nature, animals. So anything in your life that's nice to have or to experience. Possibly you have some examples of that, possibly nothing came up, that's all fine. Now also think about parts of yourself that can be meaningful. So for instance, it can be some characteristics of yourself, it can be self-care, something that you're proud of. You can be proud of something that you've achieved in your life, or your autonomy, the way how you express yourself, your creativity. So something about yourself that feels meaningful to you. Try to find some examples of that. And now that you possibly have some examples about what's meaningful about yourself, also start thinking about your social, yeah, the, the relationships that you have with other people. So think about, for instance, like your social connections, your friends, your family, or a community that you feel that you belong to. Or think about altruism, so things that you do to help others taking care of others, of children, parents, sick people. So what is meaningful for you in relationships?
And finally, think about some examples in your life, about some larger things that may be important for you in your life. That can be some very specific higher goals in your life, some bigger purposes, or like self-development, or trying to create a better world, trying to be an ethical person, or being spiritual or religious. Think about something about a bigger perspective that is important for you. Okay, if you're ready, I would like to invite you to open your eyes again and come back to the room. If you need to stretch or something like that, do that just to be back again. And possibly you have now some examples about what's meaningful in your life. I would like to ask you to write on one post-it one of those examples. So you'll most likely have like multiple post-its about multiple things that may be meaningful in your life. And so please share some post-its if you've not shared it in your row. And also some pencils if you don't have a pen yourself. And then try actually also to put them in order from the least important to the most important. It's almost like a mountain. You know, like on the lowest part is what is the least important to you, whereas the poses who are more important are higher. So try to write one meaningful experience or one example proposed it, and then try to put it in like a hierarchy of what's the least important, what's the most important. Is that clear? Can you remind us of the order? Of the order? Um, oh, you mean of like just examples of yeah, this? Yeah. yeah. I'll give you like uh, approximately five minutes for this. Okay. Most likely you're not totally finished yet. I see still a lot of people writing and reordering all the post-its. Um, possibly you can also do a bit more with about that actually in the, uh, in the lunch break if you want. I would also recommend you to possibly during the lunch break share some of your experiences with others, uh, with some people who you feel safe to share this with, um, and just have a conversation about that, because that gives you a very good, meaningful lunch break. Um, um, because the thing is, this is a very weird situation where I do a big group therapy, I give you an exercise, because usually I would like to hear the story from each of you what you've just been doing, how your experience was. I would give some time for that. We reflect on it. But that would take us a couple of days before we finished. So unfortunately, we cannot do that. Apologies for that. Uh, but look after each other during the, during the break. Um, and also be aware that what I've just done with you, this exercise, 
I've actually spoken, I've actually asked you about four different types of meanings, which are usually discussed in five different sessions. And, and like I've now squeezed that in 15 minutes. So that's very weird. And if you feel this is going too quick, y'all, it's odd, it's weird. Well, it's possibly I'm odd, I don't know, but um, it is also like very time pressured. So yeah. But just some um, just some very brief reflections, like if I would be working with you individually or in a group and I would have a look at your post-its, um, there's three things I would be looking at. The first thing is sometimes there are people who have only one or two big meanings in their lives. So that's like um, when I was giving the metaphor of like a mountain, you know when I asked you to put your post-its like in hierarchy from the least meaningful to the most meaningful. Um, and if this would be how your mountain looks like, with only having one or a couple of posts very high and for the rest nothing else, that would be kind of worrying me a bit. Because for instance, if your life is solely about um, becoming very successful in your job, imagine that that is your only meaning in life, that's the only post that you have, and imagine that then, for instance, you become very ill and you cannot work anymore. Yeah, then your total life totally collapses. Like, it's very fragile. That can break down. And, of course, then life feels totally meaningless. And, like, you can even start doubting why you're alive. And that's very much because you're so focused on only one thing, which makes you much more vulnerable for, yeah, um, yeah for failure, for feeling, well, my life's not meaningful. So, alternatively, it could be that you have so many different types of examples what's meaningful, that you have so many post-its. I can see some people having like uh, posts all over the place, um, and which is great that there are so many meaningful experiences in your life. But at the same time, particularly when it's difficult to see like a difference between what's more meaningful, what's less meaningful, then it can feel very overwhelming for yourself. Like, what should I do? Should I do that or do that or do that? And then you get that problem with decision-making. Like, there's so many meaningful things. If they're, all, if they're all equally meaningful. So what I usually suggest is, or what a lot of people suggest, is to have, like, four or five types of meanings or groups of meanings that differ in importance. So something like this. Well, there's some very meaningful things in your life. Um, for instance, for myself, giving lectures like this is really meaningful for me. Whereas drinking my cups of coffee is, and enjoying that is very low. Although I do like it, as you know by now. Um, so this is quite a healthy kind of way of looking at it. So have a think about it for yourself. Um, can you find like, like a diversity in your life? And also what's important is, also what I've said before, is how many social and larger types of meanings are there in your life? If you see on your posts that it's mainly about materialistic things or just enjoying yourself or only about yourself, it could be that that can make you feel psychologically and also possibly even physically uh, not as good as when you would have more social or larger meanings in your life. So that could also be a thing to reflect on for yourself. Well, are more social and more larger things in my life that I could focus on to, yeah, to find also all those other types of meaning. So this is very quick, uh, very quick overview how it would work with clients. I don't know much, much too quick, but I, I hope that this has given you a little bit of a feel what meaning center therapy is about. I can speak about all of this much, much longer, 
and I'm doing that at many other places. Um, so this is the last uh, minute that I'm doing my PR bit. Uh, apologies for that. People not wanting to hear it, you can put your fingers in your ears and close your eyes. Um, but of course, there's my book that I've already mentioned. There's more accessible book. I still have 10 copies there. Uh, lying at the table, which is very accessible, uh, which is a bit more fun book, but actually also still evidence-based. You also see some flyers here lying around from my website, Meaning Online, where I have put up many videos and stuff like that. It's still very new, so it's still developing. And uh, I'm also going to give uh, a two-day workshop at the Extension Academy, uh, where I'm going to really teach practitioners, uh, any type of practitioner, so you don't need to, to have a psychology background. But if you're working with people and you want to really learn how to help people live a more meaningful life, uh, then I'm going to give two workshops at the Extension Academy next year. Um, and actually, very important is if you happen to have cancer or you've had cancer in the past or you know someone else, um, I'm actually starting a big uh, trial at the Metanoia Institute where I'm going to give free therapy. Um, and I would also like to ask you then also to fill in some questionnaires so that we can find out more about how would like for people to really experience this type of therapy. So then you can just send me an email and uh, you can possibly then get uh, therapy uh, for the trial. And this is also very important. You have already seen like uh, all the flyers lying there because I'm extremely excited about this. Here in this building in July, there's going to be actually the biggest conference on meaning-centered therapy that has ever been here in the UK. We have some of really the most well-known people in the field. If you are only the slightest interested in this topic, do come because this is so unique, the people who are going to speak here. Um, so I'm really excited about it. Um, please do come. Um, yeah, I think that's what I all wanted to share with you. So there's still a bit of time for some questions, and I will also be hanging around here uh, in the break. So uh, yeah, do come and have a chat. So thank you very much. Okay, question number one is how do you train as a meaning-centered therapist? Um, like what I already showed you before is that there are like 38 different types of meaning-centered schools. So there are quite a lot of different types of schools. Um, so that's one thing to say. And also like there are a lot of those different schools have different types of training. For instance, I myself, I'm actually the leader of an existential therapy program at the New School for Psychotherapy and Counseling. Well, that's also where I'm going to give um, also this uh, two-day workshop. 
And I think this is at this moment the, the closest. Um, we're now also in the process of possibly starting there a full training, actually also based on like how already given this presentation today. So that's like in development at this moment. But the nearest is actually tr uh, doing this two-day workshop um, or doing a full extensive psychotherapy training at the London New School uh, for Psychotherapy and Counselling. Your other question is about spiritual counselling or spiritual therapy. Um, I'm not a big expert precisely on that myself, but as far as I know, it's like spiritual counselling is a very broad umbrella uh, term. So there are many different types of uh, practices with, within that. And, oh yes, I'm sure that there's loads of overlap. And, um, yeah, the, the thing is, I also don't believe that I'm, I have a monopoly on meaning or working with that. Now, that's also why I showed that overview of, like, what I call the meaning-centered therapy continuum. Where, oh yeah, it, it's, there's a lot of overlap, absolutely. What do you mean by that? Can you elaborate on that? Where do human beings come from? And can you explain why love that is? Earth. Sorry? Love on Earth. Love, sorry? Love on Earth. Life on Earth. And, um, so what you're saying is that, um, I'm trying to understand where your, your question. So what you're saying is like, our individual meaning is very difficult to um, on the central individual meaning, as long as we don't know the larger meaning of like what's life on Earth about. We, we have biological whisperings within which we have very little knowledge of. 80% of our behaviour is probably determined by that. Oh yeah, absolutely, and that's also what I'm saying all the time. Is like um, there is like a big. Um, so what I would say is like, and, and now I'm I'm kind of putting you in a category, which is the worst thing I can do. I know that. Yeah. Um, but it's very much like that's also when I'm, when I'm speaking about larger meanings or even the more abstract meanings, which is really crucial. When I'm also saying that's good for your health in that sense, like if you try to be aware of that. And yeah, our knowledge is very limited about the bigger perspective. It is very limited. It is. And yes, it is. That's an important source. And I totally agree that for many people that is very related to each other, I totally agree. And there's so many more questions, so many more uh, paths that need to be discovered there. I totally agree with you on that. And, uh, In a way we are unique also. Sorry? In a way we are unique. Absolutely, we are. And that's also the word that's saying here. Yes. Because it is, and that's crucial to reflect on that, yeah. Hi, um, I live in a therapeutic community and um, and the approach, I would say, is psychodynamic mainly. Mm -hmm. I, I don't know much about it. So. But um, how would you, how would you bring meaning mean and therapy into? Have you got any ideas how I could um, maybe bring something back to the therapy community? Yeah, thank you. Um, yeah, like what I would say is like any good therapist should always help you to find out what's meaningful for you. Like uh, any good therapist should be doing that, whether they're trained in meaning centered therapy or not. And a lot of psychodynamic people, uh, the, the, my colleagues, um, 
I know that they give also quite a lot of clear attention to that. If you, as a client, feel, hey, that's a topic I would like to discuss, but I feel at this moment there's not enough attention for that, I think that's something you can simply say, like, you can discuss, like, hey, there's something, a question that I'm missing in our relationship, in what we're doing, and explicate it and describe that, that you say, well, this is something that could be helpful. And to create a space where you can just speak about that quite openly and... Yeah, yeah, yeah. I suppose I, I also mean for the, the actual, um, the, the community itself. Mm -hmm. there, there are a lot of people who get quite bogged down in their problems. And, and, okay, yeah. and um, they're almost, they're trying to work through stuff, but they're in that very reflective yeah. place. Oh, yeah, yeah, I, I get it, yeah. Yeah, yeah so, so what I, I think that that's a very good question. So um, I would personally, um, if I would, um, for instance, be one of the people uh, yeah, uh, in such a community, I would really have a look at how can you do activities together which are meaningful and which are really precisely, uh, possibly um, even like doing some, for instance, creating some art or doing some sports or uh, playing chess games, doing uh, so stuff like that, but also um, watching movies or but also like possibly also like have a look at what other things are meaningful for you and just have a reflection on that. It can be also reading books or can be um, also speaking with people who are important to you. So it's very much creating those spaces, those activities where you can engage in those meaningful activities. And I think that that is really important. And that's one of the things that I often hear from people who are particularly in more acute care, uh, like in more psychiatric wards. I know that's something different, most likely. But what I hear is that too often, there is not so many meaningful things for them to engage in that can be actually kind of boring and um, where it can actually bring you down a bit more because you start to become even more theoretical, even more in your mind. So, and I know that sometimes it can be important to really be like in a safe space that, and that may be necessary. However, it's also, I hope that, for instance, it's one of the things like I had a friend who actually had to be uh, sectioned, unfortunately, but he, um, when he knew that he was going to be in a psychiatric ward, I actually recommended him to bring some stuff with him where possible and where that was allowed to engage in meaningful stuff. For instance, he, he really likes to draw. So I told him, or I recommended, well, bring some of your drawing books and your pencils with you, please. Otherwise, you're, you're not going to be happy there. And that's what he did. And that was what was helping him while he was there. Hey guys, Niall here again. Just one more quick thing before you go. If you're interested in getting early access to our latest psychology lectures and discounts on our live events, don't forget to go to theweekenduniversity.com forward slash podcast and enter your email to sign up. That's theweekenduniversity.com forward slash podcast. Thanks for listening and I hope you enjoyed the show.